0: Hello, and welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media, where we discuss the work of the great science fiction writer, Gene Wolfe, one story at a time. I'm Brandon
1: Buddha, And I'm Glenn McDorman. In this episode, we're not discussing the work of Gene Wolfe, but rather a story by Neil Gaiman. We're
0: going to talk about his story, Black Dog, which is printed for the first time in his collection, Trigger Warning. Glenn, Do you want to explain why we're covering this story?
1: Right. We're covering this story today because, uh, well, uh, a listener commissioned us to cover it. This is a service that we offer. And if you're a patron on Patreon, you can get a good discount on this and uh, even a free one. So if there's something you'd like us to cover, let us know. Uh, But what I want to know right now, Brandon, is what you thought of Black Dog.
0: I enjoyed this a lot more than I expected to. I had read American God's... Uh, not too long ago. I wrote a review for it on our Clay Temple website, and it was not so favorable, but I really enjoyed this story. It's a cozy supernatural mystery that takes place in the English countryside. Glenn, why don't you take us through
1: the events of this story? Happily. Uh, But before we get started, we should say that Black Dog takes place within the American Gods universe. And there is some material in this story that could potentially spoil American Gods, maybe just a tiny bit. But we've omitted those lines from our recap. So if you haven't read American Gods, or I guess watched the TV show, uh, we will not spoil anything for you. We're going to treat this as a standalone story. We begin with an epigram ascribed to an old riddle. The riddle is this. There were 10 tongues within one head, and one went out to fetch some bread to feed the living and the dead.
0: Yeah, the unasked question here is, what am I?
1: (laughs) Right. (laughs) And it's not really, this is actually not really a riddle. This is just a popular rhyme from the 19th century. We're going to find out more about the context and then also the solution to this riddle later in the story as well. All right, well, let's start chapter one then. Chapter one, The Bar Guest. Our story opens in a pub somewhere in rural northern England. And right away, I actually found this very jarring. Brandon, I'm an American, but I've lived in England. And so I'm attuned to the code switching uh, that you have to do to to live that way. And this seeming use of bar in the chapter title as Being interchangeable with the word pub in the text really drew me out of the story, but as we'll see later, the chapter title is a pun. And so when it's a
0: pun, that's right. Yeah, that's one thing I was going to say is that it's a pun for bar guest, right? Which is a term used only once in this story that's very much caught up with fairy dogs or <laughs> this, uh, you know, eponymous black dog. But uh, that's the whole point. Yeah, it's just a pun.
1: Yeah. And once I kind of realized that in the text, I was super on board with this story. So it was an opening that really worked for me in in, a, in an odd way, in a way that made me have some like angst and some mental anguish right at the start, but then hooked me once it resolved that.
0: That's right. There's There's some real tightness with the general imagery and language in this story. The opening line is, outside the pub, it was raining cats and dogs. The story is very much caught up with cats and dogs. Later on, we have reference to a famous painting, and that image comes back again and again. And there's just, I was really surprised, pleasantly surprised by how tightly constructed the imagery in this story is.
1: Well, let's meet our protagonist now. There's a man named Shadow, who is also the protagonist of the novel American Gods. And when the story opens, he is uncomfortable in this pub to him it seems more like a living room than a drinking establishment and the large number of patrons with dogs reinforces that impression for him shadow strikes up a conversation with the barkeep and an elderly couple about the dogs in the pub and uh this really rang true to me brandon my uh, my old local when i lived in leeds where i used to to go read novels on a sunday afternoon had a bunch of cats and uh in Oxford, I used to go to the Gardener's Arms once a week to edit my dissertation material. And this pub was 100% old men with dogs.
0: That's, that's fantastic. <laughs> I, do, I do really like uh, a few things about this old couple. As you say, they have an interesting take on dog breeding in the UK as a difference to dog breeding in the, in the US. And they make a comment about why America is such an interesting company. Such an interesting country. And there's a few moments in this story where Neil Gaiman points out, like, kind of differences in the culture of America and England. And this is the first note we get in this story. But there's a line he says about this older woman. It reads Shadow was not certain how old she was. Her hair was white, but she seemed younger than her hair. I just want to point this out. There's some really great prose in this story, but this is the kind of prose in Neil Gaiman's stories that often kind of just. Chafes a little bit against my taste as a reader.
1: Yeah, I actually kind of liked that detail in the story. And there, there's some other details going on here that uh, I think expertly set a mood and a tone for what's going to become a weird fiction story. And a big part of that is this conversation in the bar with the barkeep, this elderly couple, the conversation is very, very charming. You know, they're talking about dogs. We also learned that the elderly man has mutton chops, right? So Gaiman is really enjoying pointing out people's hair at this point. And this, this mutton chopped elderly man even just makes this kind of innocuous statement that in his opinion, good is not the avoidance of evil, but something more positive than that. It is making the world a better place.
0: Yeah, this line is fantastic. And it and it brings up something I, I'd like to talk about in the discussion, which is this man is pointing out the difference between coincidental action, which I think a lot of the action in this story is based on, versus intentional action. And I just want us to keep that in mind as we hear the recap of this story and think about how Shadow Moon acts as a protagonist.
1: Yeah, that's going to be a real good thing to, to keep an eye on here. So right now, this conversation is some really nice sleight of hand to get us not to notice when Gaiman gives us the setup of the ensuing story here. At this point, the barman pours a dark and very bitter beer for Shadow called Black Dog. A younger woman in a green sweater tells him that the beer is named for a local dog. Not a real one, but a semi-imaginary one. And this, of course, is the pun in the chapter title. As you pointed out, Brandon, this is a bar guest, right? But we'll return to that later. For now, Shadow has a conversation with the elderly couple and the younger woman, or at least that's how it seems.
0: Yeah, there's some really great dialogue here and very clever writing. I think Neil Gaiman is at the top of his game in the first chapter of this story, really setting things up to make a second reading really, really worthwhile and enjoyable.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And this dialogue is all real crisp. I mean, it reminded me very much of his of his comic book writing days. It really reminded me of of The Sandman. Well, the conversation drifts, and we leave behind the hints that Gayman has given us. And we head further into the pub, where the landlord wants to show Shadow a mummified cat. They found the cat in a wall when they knocked it down to expand the pub, and it must have been placed there sometime between 1300 and 1600. The mutton-chopped man tells us some interesting facts. People used to wall up living animals and children because it would help the building stay up, especially churches. That's fact one. Fact two is that when archaeologists found tons of mummified cats around the Temple of Bast in Egypt, the cats were sent to England to be ground up as cheap fertilizer.
0: Yeah, and there's a great line that the old man says here that uh, we we'll want to keep in mind as we continue the recap. It's something that really struck me the second time I read this story. He says, all sorts of things were walled up to make sure that things were guarded and safe. And there's a great bit of misdirection here with the
1: vagueness of his language. Yeah, and all of this is going to come back later in the story. And it's, it's all being set up just masterfully. Shadow goes on to explain that he is on a walking holiday, and he had been intending to walk a few miles more this evening, but while he's been in the pub, it started to rain, and so he inquires about a room. The pub no longer has a room to rent, but the elderly couple, whose names we now learn are Moira and Oliver, invite him to stay the evening with them, and that closes out chapter one. Chapter two, the gibbet. The three of them walk down the rainy streets of this sleepy northern village. They pass a massive sycamore tree, and Moira points out that it was a gibbet tree, which is to say it's a tree, or used to be a tree, from which the corpses of executed criminals would be displayed in a metal cage.
0: Yeah, and Moira and Oliver, who is this couple, they have an exchange about living in this town. And Moira says the land gets into your blood, sort of. And Oliver replies, and the blood gets into the land, one way or another. And it's just another great little innocuous phrase by this kind of busybody man that comes back in a big way by the end of the story.
1: Yeah, he he doesn't shut up, which is something we really learn right away is, is his character trait. And if you read, if you were even just to read only his lines in this story, I think that he would actually tell you the whole What the whole story is about, just reading his lines. So it's really expertly done. Now, this this gibbeting practice was used both to deter other criminals and also to deny the criminal a proper Christian burial. And so already we're seeing a theme here, Brandon, of people or creatures who haven't been buried properly.
0: Yeah, it is from page one or two of this story. This is hammered over and over and over again. But I feel like it is so well obscured in your first pass that you're not even paying attention to it because Neil Gaiman does such a good job of introducing us to these characters that even though we've known them for three or four pages, we know what to expect from them already. And this is what we would expect from this man in this town that is so embedded in a history of odd burial practices.
1: Yeah. And all of it just reads as prattle for us right now. So it really is, as you say, it's expertly done. Well, there's one more interesting local feature that Moira wants to point out to their guest. And that is the legend of Black Shuck, a sort of fairy dog who sometimes follows people at night, always resulting in their deaths a little later. And now here is where we get the pawn in chapter one, right? This this type of supernatural black dog is called a bar guest. B-A-R-G-H-E-S-T, which is, of course, a nice homonym for bar guest. And bar guests feature especially in the folklore of Northern England as black dogs. And the etymology of the name is unclear, but the guest part is taken to be Germanic in origin and related to geist, meaning ghost or spirit, or maybe just generic supernatural thing. And of course, everyone is familiar with the spectral black dog story from the Sherlock Holmes novel, The Hound of the Baskervilles. And I once saw, Brandon, a doom metal band play in Leeds that played a 45-minute song about a bar guest in Whitby.
0: <laughs> that's fantastic. Yeah, one one thing I was reading about the etymology of the bar guest and one suggestion was that the the bar could also mean bear, like bear ghost, uh, which I also think would be a great a great creature to come across if you lived in in the Nordic lands, where some of these words came from.
1: So, while it's safe to say at this point that this black dog is going to be the principal feature of the story, that's entitled black dog, it's still just a conversation point, and we're going to learn another important detail on our walk. So We also learn here that Moira's been living in this area since her 20s, but Oliver only moved here from London eight years ago. Moira was in a relationship, but she fell in love with Oliver, and they've been together ever since.
0: We also get a little bit about Shadow's character and who he is and kind of what's going on with him, we learn that his wife was killed in a car crash. And when Moira is very apologetic about this or very polite in receiving this news from him, his response is, it happened. It happened. And if you've read American Gods, you know that Shadow has a very flat affect throughout the book, and that's kind of a main feature of his character is he's a person that's kind of entrenched in past trauma and is living with it in a very odd way. He's enduring or bearing or suffering through this these past traumatic experiences. And the trauma doesn't really stop coming for him. I also want to point out, um, there's a great example of kind of what I think is a great example of prose in this story, and and then a line that kind of took me out of it. And so Moira says she's going to catch her death if they don't get home soon. And Shadow imagines this thing. Shadow has a rich internal life. And this line is the line that kind of took me out of the story briefly. It's this, Shadow imagined reaching out his hand and catching death in it like a baseball, and he shivered. It's a line that ripped me out of the story. But then the following paragraph, I think, is absolutely stunning, which is the rain redoubled and a sudden flash of lightning burned the world into existence all around them. Every gray rock in the dry stone wall, every blade of grass, every puddle, and every tree was perfectly illuminated and then swallowed by a deeper darkness, leaving afterimages in shadows, night-blinded eyes. I just think that is beautiful prose, incredible description, and I wish they had just cut the line before it.
1: Yeah, that description is completely evocative. Even just, just sitting here across the table from you, hearing you read that brought me back to this imaginary place. And it, it, I, I shivered while you were reading it. It is such evocative, such beautiful language. And this flash of lightning is going to be now important to the plot because once, uh, because in the aftermath of the lightning flash, Oliver asks his companions if they saw that. After another flash, Shadow thinks that he sees an animal in a field, and Moira insists that it's only a donkey. But Oliver does not seem to buy that story, and when there is a third flash of lightning, he collapses to the ground unconscious. Shadow picks him up and carries him the rest of the way to the house, where Moira explains that Oliver is narcoleptic and sometimes responds this way to stress or to fear. Uh, Moira makes some tea for Oliver, and when he awakes, he says that the black dog followed him home. And at this point, Brandon, I am pretty well hooked. I want to know what the heck is going on.
0: Yeah, I really love it. I, I Yeah, I don't understand why Moira is so reticent to do anything. Shadow's explanation is that the English are just strange but he can identify with not wanting to make a fuss. So there's another bit of like the Americans versus the English, which is a thing that is developed throughout this story. But what's weirder to me is that Shadow just decides to stay. I mean, he's in no way responsible. This has no impact on him. And he could probably just ask to borrow an umbrella and continue walking a few miles. But instead, he decides that he's going to stay the night, even though now he's in the midst of a crisis that's far beyond his own powers and control. So perhaps he's also intrigued by the Black Dog and what it has to do with Oliver.
1: Yeah, we should say as well, Brandon, that Neil Gaiman is an Englishman who lives in America. And so when he's having an American make these observations about English life. He's having a bit of a go at his own homeland and putting on sort of the the persona or the mentality of of his adoptive homeland now. And as someone who has also lived in both countries, I found all of this really quite hilarious.
0: It's great. It's it's really good fun. I mean, it's just
1: one of the things to love about this story. (laughs) All right. Well, that closes out chapter two. So now we can begin chapter three, The Cuts. With Oliver revived, the three of them sit around the kitchen table and talk, and Shadow learns a number of important things about Moira and Oliver. Oliver is prone to depression, and it's why he quit his fancy job in London and moved to a village in the north. He's low on money now, and has taken to repairing the dry stone walls that, along with the sheep they are meant to contain, are the dominant feature of the English countryside. Shortly after he and Moira got together, Oliver had a bad bout of depression, but he's been largely fine since. That's the first thing that we learn. The second thing that we learn is that Moira is independently wealthy and uses that luxury to play a role in local affairs, and she campaigned to keep the local bus routes in service.
0: Yeah, what I love about Oliver's prattle here is uh, that he says to shadow um which just sounds like a polite thing for a man to say to like another man who 's wandering and might be out of work uh, that he 'd love to show shadow how to build these dry stone walls because it 's a useful skill to have, but then he also reminds us how strong these walls are he says you, once they're in place you can 't knock them you couldn 't knock them down with a tank
1: yeah these these walls are coming back i think we I think we know. So. As interesting as all of these tidbits are, Shadow, like me, really wants to know what Oliver meant about the dog following him home. But Oliver won't talk about it, and he answers Shadow's questions by stammering and swaying. as you say, Brandon, Shadow has decided to stay, and so the next morning, he gets up and makes himself some toast. Moira comes in from the garden and asks Shadow to look at something for her. In the garden is the print of an enormous hound, as Shadow and Gaiman both quote, the hound of the Baskervilles, uh, in case we've missed the references up to this point.
0: Yeah, it's great. And I love here how uh, Shadow quotes Dr. Watson. He says, to quote Dr. Watson. And I think something that's important about that is like, uh, Gaiman is explicitly now comparing Shadow to Sherlock Holmes. But I wonder if it's more apt to compare Shadow to. Dr. Watson, as kind of the witness of events more than the actor in the events.
1: Oh, that's a real great point. I think, well, I expect you'll bring this up again in our discussion. I'll look forward to that. So Moira explains this print away by remembering that her neighbor, Mrs. Camberley, has a Doberman. Back in the house, they discover that Oliver has locked himself in the bathroom. Moira laments that Oliver might be cutting himself again. So Shadow breaks the lock. Oliver has been cutting himself again, and now he is on the floor, bleeding. His eyes are open, but Shadow doesn't think that Oliver is really seeing the world. And Oliver mutters, It's for the dog. It must be fed. You see, we're making friends.
0: Yeah, this section was something I read in horror (laughs) my first time through and skimmed quickly over my second time through. Gaiman's full descriptive talents are on display as we described before in this story, in evoking a certain time and place and reality that is, in this instance, gruesome and uncomfortable.
1: Yeah, I didn't really give our listeners the, the full description of what's going on in the bathroom because it was grotesque. It's, it's some good prose. It's definitely worth reading, but it was grotesque and I didn't want to say it. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's dark. <laughs> All right. Well, in the end, Oliver's wounds are shallow and Moira doesn't want to take him to the hospital. Shadow disagrees with this decision, but he's let her be in charge, and he accepts her invitation to stay for even longer at this point. And during this conversation, Shadow explains that no one is waiting for him, or expecting him, anywhere, which is something you should just never tell anyone— especially in the English countryside. If there's one thing I know, you don't tell elderly women in the English
0: countryside that no one's waiting for you. This is a basic rule of survival.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah you're, I, We've all read an Agatha Christie novel or two. We right, know the tea's poisoned. Right, right.
0: <laughs> I do want to say, though, that at this point I was screaming in my head, like, Shadow, what are you still doing here? Like, what is your obligation to these people? It's something that really irked me, actually, on my second read through this story, is thinking... You know, as I was kind of taking notes, right at the line where he says, "How's he doing?" and the woman shrugs, and he tells her that he has to help her. I'm like, "What are you What are you trying to accomplish here, as the protagonist? What is your goal?" And I I don't know that he has one. And then the woman just pleads with him to stay because she can't cope on her own, and it's odd to me in a story that's ostensibly caught up in this small community where everybody knows each other and kind of looks out for one another, that she would ask the aid of the stranger, the man who comes to town, rather than seek uh, aid within the community, who, as we'll learn later on, kind of knows all of her secrets anyway.
1: Those are some great points, Brandon. I'll address the, the second one, which is to say, I think that actually, I think, again, this might be gay men having a little bit of a go at English social mores. I think we have passed it already but Gaiman has made a nice comment in here about how English people find embarrassment everywhere they go and it's it's their hobby.
0: Yeah, that's a really great point. I think that's a part of it, but for me there's just a little this is the first sense of the story that there's just a little piece missing, you know. There's a little there's a brick loose.
1: Yeah, I think you might be right in terms of narrative construction, but I do think that I do think that This is actually keeping within Shadow's character and in keeping with his own goals. But I'll look forward to talking more about that when we've gotten to the end of the story. It's going to come up. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, a doctor makes a house call and writes some prescriptions for Oliver. Moira needs to stay with him. So Shadow drives to the next village and has them filled at the pharmacy. At the pharmacy, Shadow runs into the younger woman he'd seen at the pub the day before, wearing the same green sweater she introduces herself as Cassie Burglass, which is the only name I think here, Brandon, that is a little too on the nose. I mean, her name is Cassie Mountain Girl.
0: Right. And that- Yeah. And Cassandra, who is the one who knows and nobody believes. I mean,
1: it's a little playful. It is. I mean, I think it's fun. I think this would have resonated more with me when I was 14 and didn't pick it up right away. But it seemed real on the nose to me. But it's still it's it's pretty fun. So she's heard about Oliver already, almost inexplicably, in fact. But she really just wants to suggest some walks that Shadow could take while he's stuck here helping out. And in particular, she recommends Wode's Hill, which is to say, though Gaiman doesn't point it out, Woden's Hill. And so we know that we are in for some old time religion in this story which of course is a feature of American Gods, also a big feature of Gaiman's Sandman work. And that brings chapter three to a close.
0: Yeah. So before we jump into the next chapter, which we begins with Shadow helped Moira, Moira, and it's a description of how he's kind of staying around to help her. I wonder if it's the question I brought up earlier, which is to say that for some reason, Shadow not having anywhere to go or nobody really to wait for him is meant to be, I think motivation for his character, but it reads really like absence of motivation. And that to me is is uh, just an interesting feature of this character, this perhaps like we'd call him like an iconic hero, like a Sherlock Holmes type who travels around the country and solves these supernatural crimes. <laughs> Though it's not really presented that way, this story is presented that way. And I think American Gods is structured in a way that's about this person who is going from place to place and revealing these mysteries, that his lack of desire to do anything else is somehow meant to be a positive motivator. So I just want us to keep that in mind as we continue this story, because it, it just came up. And if you're pulling your hair out wondering, why doesn't he just go, what's keeping him here? What is his function in this plot? I think that's a piece of it. And I hope through our discussion that you and I will be able to kind of explain some of that.
1: Well, for now, let's carry on with our narrative. We can get into chapter four here, The Kiss. As you say, Brandon, Shadow stays with Moira and Oliver a little while longer, for two days, largely doing errands for Moira in the rain. But on the third day, the sun comes out, so Shadow goes for a walk up Wode's Hill. Near the top is a small meadow from which he can look out on the surrounding peaks. And Cassie Burglass is also there, sketching the scenery. She is not wearing a coat, only her green sweater. But that's not really important. What matters is that she tells Shadow that she is the person Moira was with before Oliver arrived, and now she wants to hook up with Shadow. Shadow is hesitant about this, but Cassie says that all she dreams about these days is somebody who looks her way and sees the real Cassie. And Shadow looked at her in the pub, and she knew that he saw her, and that's all that matters right at this point, she kind of switches
0: gears and just asks Shadow if he's going to kiss her. This is a big question for me. This is another uh, bit of brick that's loose in this story, is I don't quite understand the need in the plot for this uh, sensuality of Cassie as an attractor to Shadow. Why she feels Shadow needs this from her in order to be motivated to do I suppose, whatever she needs him to do by the end of the plot. This is like the dame walks into the office scene in, in what would have otherwise be a noir story.
1: Yeah, the, the sensuality here does seem to me to be pretty unmotivated, though we, there is going to be a consequence of it. We'll see. We'll get there in, in just a moment. But I want to point out that while they're up here, really before the making out starts, they, they talk for a while. And Cassie points out some ruins that are up here that are called the gateway to hell. They are Roman or perhaps something even older. That's not clear. But despite the name, all it really amounts to is a passageway going back into the hill. Shadow asks Cassie about the black dogs, and she explains that the phenomenon is often described as a folk memory of Odin's hunting wolves, but she thinks the stories predate the arrival of Germanic peoples in Britain. So at this point, then they start making out, but they're interrupted when they become surrounded by cats, and uh, that's pretty weird, as Shadow himself says. They look jealous to Cassie, and Shadow is reminded of someone he was romantically involved with once, and at this point, the mood is ruined for Cassie. She says that she doesn't know why Shadow can see the real her, or why she can talk to him when she finds it so hard to talk to other people, but she knows that he is really weird. And Cassie goes, but not before instructing Shadow to tell Ali and Moira that she'll be waiting where they last spoke, you know, in case they have anything they want to say to her. And that's the end of chapter four.
0: Yeah, a few things I want to bring up here is uh Cassie seems to have some uh, prescience within her own uh, character, her ability to see or perhaps uh, perceive elements of the future. And she asks Oliver in almost a prophetic way, can't you stay forever? Which is a line I really enjoyed on the second reread in particular. Um, And I do want to say that this arrival of the cats is related to kind of major plot elements of American Gods. And it's also narratively meaningful within the structure of the story. And I think it feels loose here in in this plot, because it's Gaiman relying too heavily upon the characters he created in American Gods, rather than letting that rather than letting this story kind of be told for itself.
1: I think that's right. And and you point here to your know, questions about why there's this making out to begin with. The making out, I think, is so that we can have the cats. The cats are so we can connect the story back to American gods. They do also then feature in the resolution of the plot. We're going we're gonna to get there. But I think all of that could have been cut and would have made a, a stronger story. But we'll see when we get there, and we can, we can talk about this more in our discussion. Definitely. Well, for now, let's get into Chapter 5, The Living and the Dead. This is the penultimate chapter. It is the climactic chapter. We're going to be in it for quite a while, but we're going to see all of these things come to a head, come to fruition. When Shadow returns from his walk, he finds Oliver much improved and reading a book about Roman architecture. And Shadow tells Oliver and Moira about Cassie Burglass. And Oliver says that he doesn't understand. And Moira gets angry. It wasn't a good breakup, she says. Cassie behaved appallingly and then just up and left the village in the night, never to return. They don't want to talk about her. And when Shadow points out that they didn't seem to have a problem with her in the pub, Oliver says that he didn't see her there.
0: Yeah, and there's a few things going on here. The first thing is that just before Shadow brings up Cassie Burglass, he tries to leave and the old couple for some reason, say, well, there's no hurry. Feel free to stay as long as you like, which just seems very odd to me. Like A narrative need for him to stay is just this invitation. And the motivation in the narrative for him to stay is just that this couple keeps inviting him to stay. And also in this part of the story, uh, Gaiman is doing some work to connect this black dog thematically with depression. There's some explicit connections being made in the text. But also, this is the part in the story that another allusion is made, apart from The Hound of the Baskervilles, to a painting called um, The Nightmare by Fuseli. It's a fantastic painting, and you should look it up if you haven't seen it, because it's stunning imagery, and it's imagery that Gaiman plays with throughout the rest of the story. I also want to just say one more thing about the Cassie Burglass faux pas that uh, that Shadow kind of stumbled through is that he has another opportunity to leave here where he tries to excuse himself. And Moira is being very polite and gracious and saying, you didn't know you weren't here. I can't believe you saw her. Um, we'll deal with her. So it's another, like in this two pages, we have two opportunities for Shadow to just get out of the situation politely when he can. And yet, for some reason, he's compelled to stay but not in a way that's very visible to the reader
1: yeah and oliver is actually now so very upset that he retreats to the bedroom and moira says that she won't go talk to oliver about cassie because that never goes well and we don't really ever learn that shadow has anything to do at this point point. and in fact that night shadow eats alone in the pub and then has trouble sleeping as he mulls it all over and he knows that something strange is going on, and he has a hunch about what it is. Quietly, he gets up in the middle of the night, climbs out the window, and hides in a patch of darkness. A short while later, the front door opens, and a figure emerges. Shadow had half expected it to be Moira, but it turns out to be Oliver. Oliver walks off, and Shadow waits a while to follow. He knows where he's going anyway. Halfway up Wode's Hill, Shadow finds Oliver sitting on a tree stump, waiting for him just as the eastern sky is beginning to lighten. The two of them continue up the hill together, Shadow's heart pumping in his chest. Shadow asks him how he got Cassie up here, and Oliver explains that he didn't. It was Cassie's idea to meet on the mountain. You see, she always loved that it was a holy site for the old religion. Shadow asks her if he, Oliver means the Druids, but Oliver says that it doesn't have a name. It's just the numinous thing that makes the crops grow and keeps a person youthful and even makes sure that people don't build motorways through this beautiful landscape. Now at this point, Shadow brings the conversation back around to Cassie, asking Oliver if Moira knows. Oliver scoffs and mumbles something about how the hill or the gate protects itself. He rambles about the black dog a bit, saying that he doesn't think it's actually a dog but it's been around for a very long time. And, and now, finally, that we have all these hints and references, Shadow explains what it is that he has figured out. He's the only person who can see Cassie, because Cassie is a ghost, and Oliver murdered her.
0: Yeah, it's a great reveal. It, but it does kind of make you wish that Shadow had done something up to this point in the story to make this reveal about something more than just us getting
1: knowledge. Well, at this point, we're, we're in for some action. When they reach the top of the hill and the gateway to hell, Cassie's ghost is there, but Oliver still cannot see her. Oliver confesses that he walled her up alive in the ruins, and now he asks Shadow to help him open the wall back up. They find Cassie there in her green sweater, and ghost Cassie starts begging Shadow to hit Oliver with a rock. He killed her, and now he's going to kill Shadow too. Shadow just blatantly asks Oliver if he's going to kill him. And of course Oliver is going to kill him. Shadow knows about Cassie. And besides, once Shadow is gone, Oliver will be able to forget the whole thing. Forgive, too, he adds, though. Then he muses that it won't be easy to forgive, but he's sure he'll be able to forget. And this little line here, Brendan, this is some of the this is some of the material that you mentioned that, that really makes equates the black dog with, with depression that we're, that we're getting here. But Shadow is pretty confident that Oliver won't be able to kill him, given that he is literally twice Oliver's size. But Oliver didn't come up here alone. This is the temple of the black dog, the bar guest, and it's still very powerful. Oliver says simply, he is in me, and I am in him. And suddenly, the black dog is there?
0: What's interesting is that even though Shadow knows that this man is going to try to kill him, he he does nothing to act against it. He seems perhaps unconvinced that o- Oliver could kill him, but it doesn't really read that way. He he just doesn't act. This is the second time Cassandra, Cassie, I'll say, has given him prescient advice. Another thing that's going on here is Oliver's convinced he's not a bad man. And I like that he says, I'm not a bad man. But he doesn't say he's a good man. And that's because he already gave us the definition of what a good man is. And it's just a really wonderful bit of wordplay that Neil Gaiman has written into this story at this point.
1: Yeah, we're going to get some more good good material out of Oliver here as our, as our climax continues. But now that the Black Dog is here, Shadow sees that it is immense. And he Uh, has a beautiful simile uh, here that Gaiman uses, where he says that the black dog is to a wolf as a tiger is to a lynx. And the dog has luminescent eyes and a deep growl. It attacks Shadow, biting his arm and sapping his will. Shadow surrenders and complies, getting into the wall while Oliver replaces the stones. As he labors, Oliver offers his own hypothesis about the dog, he thinks it is a prehistoric dire wolf, the monster of our dreams, or maybe it was simply a wolf, but that our folk memory of it dates from a time when humans weren't yet Homo sapiens, but some smaller hominid. And these are some great references here to the long tradition of weird fiction's relationship with mythology and folklore. Uh, And this is all especially reminiscent of the work of Algernon Blackwood and Arthur Machen, which very much informs, I think, all of Neil Gaiman's work, but especially his work here in the American Gods universe.
0: That's right. And it's not to be forgotten that he's also playing with Norse mythology here. Uh, I guess the second time at this point that it's given to us in a text that this dog is Wode's dog or Odin's dog.
1: And I think it's nicer that Gaiman really plays with the nature of this dog there we get several possibilities given in this story and we don't ever land on any particular one of them because that's not what matters here this is not a creature out of the monster manual we don't have to know what it is we're not going to we are not going to have to fight it with our D&D characters that as we'll talk about in the discussion i think as we're about to get some stuff here in the recap the black dog is as much a metaphor as it is anything else
0: Yeah, that's right. And it's also a feature of the American gods universe that these gods, these old gods and old creatures exist in part because people still believe in them. And one thing Gaiman has done up to this point in the story is create a village where the townspeople are still absolutely obsessed with this folklore. They name a beer after it, they have a lane named after one of the dogs. There's the gibbet tree, which is, you know, tied to this in some way. And there's so much going on in this story that points to a town that still, in some way, pays homage to this dog, which is where its power comes from.
1: Well now we can come to the climax of this story, and there is some stuff here that we'll spoil American Gods a little bit if you haven't read it. So I'm going to obscure some of those details uh, so that it won't spoil it for, for anyone. A shadow hears a voice in his mind that wants him to keep fighting. The black dog is just a thing of mind. It is taking its power from shadow and it is up to shadow to fight back. A shadow is motivated by this or empowered by this perhaps and he kicks down the wall and this time doesn't allow himself to be attacked Instead, he is the aggressor, taking the dog by its muzzle and dominating it. And with his mind, Shadow communicates with this spectral hound. He says, run away. Whatever you are, run away. Run back to your gibbet. Run back to your grave, little wish hound. All you can do is depress us. Fill the world with shadows and illusions.
0: Yeah, it's a great scene where... Shadow finally decides to do something (laughs) in the text. Um, But I also want to point out that what motivates him isn't necessarily a need to survive, which is odd that that Shadow isn't really motivated to survive. He's motivated more by curiosity.
1: So at this point, Shadow lets go of the dog, and it whines and whimpers. But then it recovers, and Shadow knows that the dog will not simply go away. Shadow prepares to fight, but he stumbles and trips over Oliver's body, and he knows that he is going to die. But he isn't. There is another numinous presence on the hill, ghostly cats from Egypt, here because the Victorians had ground up the mummified cats from tomb and used them as fertilizer. The cats attack the black dog and they overcome it. The black dog doesn't die, though but screams and retreats into Oliver, who awakes with a shake. And there's a really beautiful sentence here that I want to read. The scream faded, and the beast was gone, and sunlight filled the space on the hill.
0: I love it. I love it. And one I, another line I love here is that the way that Shadow describes this Barguest going back into Oliver, I think it's just such great language. Uh, Neil Gaiman writes this. He said, Shadow could have sworn that the creature stepped into Oliver like a bear stepping into a river. It's such a strong image and ghostly and strange, and it makes Oliver seem like he's the the kind of numinous being and the dog is more real at this point. I think it's just such a wonderful, wonderful simile.
1: Yeah, there is really just some gorgeous language in this story. Well, with the black dog gone... Shadow feels like he has just woken up from a waking sleep. Emotions flood through him like sunlight. Another great simile, I think. And Shadow is thinking clearly for the first time in days. And all of this language here, Brandon, this is about depression. This is what it's like to come out of a depression. And I think that speaks to your problem here with Shadow's lack of a desire to survive while he's being walled up, because I think that's a feature of depression as well—just kind of not caring about anything. And so I, th- I think that's what Gaiman is doing. And you might be right to criticize that's effectiveness for driving a plot, but I do think that it is a nice theme, and I think he handles that—the thematic part of it—quite well here.
0: I think that's a fair read on this story, and and maybe m- would have felt more apt to me if I hadn't read the novel first, which because this is also a feature of shadows character in the novel. And the, what the novel lacks is this uh, thematic metaphor that ties everything together. And so I think I'm just getting more of the same shadow where he's still unmotivated, still moving around. We are told it's years past the events of the novel where he hopefully should have moved on and gained some ability to act in the world meaningfully. And yet it's just more of the same. But you're right, the descriptions here are beautiful uh, of the grayness and the sunrise, the rain and the sun and the, high, like the activity. Uh, if it is that the black dog is somehow connected to Shadow's mood, then it works. But it reads like the black dog is really about Oliver as well. And it's not even the town. And so that to me is a little bit of a missed opportunity to tie the thematic metaphor into the narrative.
1: Well, I'll have some more to say on this, I think, when we get into the the discussion. But I think at this moment, we can get back to our narrative. The pub owner and his own dog appear, having heard the screaming whilst out on their morning walk. Right. And the man
0: comes up and Shadow explains, tries to explain what happened, because this pub owner obviously knows about Cassie, that she left town. He knows Oliver and he's looking at something trying to piece it together and and Shadow says to the man by way of explanation that Oliver had asked him to come up here with him and he said he had something awful he had to get off his chest and this is a wonderful callback to that painting that Neil Gaiman brought up earlier it's just so good this is the kind of stuff that's like just so much fun when you're reading closely a narrative is just how this author Neil Gaiman in particular is able to just so tightly construct the language around the imagery he's already created in the story it's really strong stuff
1: yeah that's a great observation i i hadn't picked that up i know this painting i i love it it's a uh, an extraordinarily evocative it's also on the cover of like every psychology textbook ever but i had not picked up that callback to it at all that was a, a great catch Well, the pub owner also calls the police with his cell phone, and as the police arrive, Ghost Cassie has one last conversation with Shadow. Now that her body can be removed from the temple, her spirit is free. She used Shadow. She admits it, and she hopes that he doesn't hate her. And that's the end of Chapter 5. So let's move into Chapter 6, The Riddle. When Shadow is done giving his statement at the police station— Moira and her sister are there waiting for him. Moira wants to know how Shadow could have seen Cassie if she was dead, and she's pretty angry about it. Shadow says that he doesn't know. He doesn't believe in ghosts, so it must have been someone playing a game with him as an outsider. Well, they drive Shadow back to his trailhead, and along the way, they pass the gibbet tree. Moira's sister intones the riddle that was the story's epigram. There were ten tongues within one head, and one went out to fetch some bread to feed the living and the dead. And Shadow asks what it means, and the sister explains that a wren made a nest inside the skull of a gibbeted corpse flying in and out of the jaw to feed its young. In the midst of death, she says, life just keeps on happening. And that's where our story ends.
0: Yeah, it's a great way to end this story and kind of appropriate with the tone of the story. It's not that like, life goes on in that cliched phrase that's meant to be upbeat and positive. It's just life keeps happening. And, and this is almost a Sisyphean struggle that we are seeing here. It's, it's just death and life are one and the same almost in this story, that there's perhaps a meaningless circle Tied to death and life, that it's not upbeat and positive in the sunshine over the hill. It is just the gray and the rain and the black dog. It just keeps happening, and it's just I don't know an appropriate ending to this story. I feel.
1: Yeah, I think it actually kind of ties up some of the another feature of the story that you were observing. I hesitate to use the theme, and I think you would disagree with me entirely if I were to call it a theme. But the inaction of shadow. Here, I mean, we we're kind of told explicitly that really what we do doesn't matter. Life is going to keep on happening no matter what. If we die, something will live inside of us. Something will use what remains of our body for food or as a home or something. And I think that wraps up, I think, that part of the story as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Shadows, shadows in action is a real question mark for me, and it's something we'll, we'll get to as we move into the discussion. But I have a few questions I would just want to talk about the story first. So we covered a lot in this story during the recap already about Shadow's character and his what we called inaction, but which I'm going to refer to as passivity, because it'll play a part in what we get to in just a bit in the discussion. But the first thing I want to ask you is, what do you think of this story, apart from its connection with the American gods, with the protagonist being shadow or a character-like shadow? What what are the strengths and weaknesses that you saw in this story? And I kind of want to ask you about mostly how you feel about the protagonist, because I think we can both agree the plot and narrative are, are fantastic.
1: Yeah, I really loved this story. I really enjoyed the the folklore. That's something I definitely liked about it. I'll have to confess, as an American who has lived for a little over a year in Northern England and spent as much of that time as possible hillwalking this story just was, it was right up my alley. I mean, it just felt familiar to me. I wanted to be there. I wanted to, I wanted to insert myself into this story somehow. So it really spoke to me there. And I also, I think quite enjoyed the the themes of the story, especially this theme of depression. I think the point that your question is trying to make, or what you'd like to talk about is the question of whether or not this protagonist from American Gods belongs in this story or not i have to say that I don't think so. I think the story is undermined by trying to to do that. I think this story would have worked a lot better with a new protagonist who can have some kind of motivation for this story. We don't even know why Shadow is has come to Britain from America. We know that he's out on a very long walking holiday. He look, appears to be doing this uh, north to south walk from the northern tip of Britain down to the south, which is a popular walk that people do. It takes the whole summer. Uh, It takes a little longer than the whole summer, actually. And that seems to be what he's doing. We also know that his wife died and that he has no one in his life, that no one is waiting for him. And we can string those things together to come up with something of a motive for him, at least in a big sense, right? That perhaps he is on this holiday, on this vacation, because he can't bear to be at home. He's walking to find himself or to maybe even escape from himself, maybe both at the same time, that he himself seems to be suffering from some kind of depression. I think we're meant to infer all of that, but we're never explicitly told that. And I think that if Gaiman had invented a new protagonist, we could have learned those details, which would have helped us relate to the character more, helped us understand the character more and also would have really aided that theme, I think. I think the story could only have been improved by getting rid of Shadow and replacing him with literally any other protagonist.
0: Something I want to talk more about is, I mean, this was my feeling about... American gods, as well, is that Shadow is. I don't understand Shadow as a protagonist. I don't understand what kind of character he is. Is he an iconic hero like Sherlock Holmes who is not meant to change? But is supposed to experiences is is supposed to go into situations that he is uniquely qualified to understand and engage with, and the world changes around him, but he stays the same. Or is he more of like a dynamic hero in which his dramatic arc and character growth are important? It's really not clear to me which shadow is, and I just wonder. Do you think, and, th- and maybe this is the most important question that I, uh, you know, about this that I'm going to ask, is, as Shadow as a protagonist, is, do you think that the events of this story would have taken place had Shadow never come to town? Uh, I, I have some textual support that the answer is yes, but I want to talk about whether you think that's strong or weak, or whether it's fair play with the reader. So, one thing is. Cassandra says that she's woken up by Shadow. I think Oliver says that the Black Dog is awakened by Shadow's presence. And maybe there's something to Shadow's being that causes the spirit world to stir. So my question to you is, one, is that a fair play that that Gaiman is engaging with? And two, is it strong enough to build a story around?
1: Those are some really interesting questions. I'm going to Talk first about the iconic versus the dramatic hero part, and then then get to the nature of Shadow. I think that some of your angst maybe about the protagonist, about Shadow in this story, is that he reads like an iconic hero, someone who doesn't change in the course of a story, so that he can continue to have adventures, Sherlock Holmes. Right? Perhaps the most iconic, uh, most iconic, iconic hero of all time. Though you know, this is also how Star Trek is told. For example, right? We we just we wrap up an episode and then we reset for the next one. That the the dramatic characters are the guest stars or the criminals that we're catching or the people who are in who are hiring Sherlock to solve the cases. But I think that Gaiman wants. Shadow here to be a dramatic hero. And I think that those lines that I, I read out about him suddenly having emotions again, his depress- his own depression being lifted, or at least a depression being lifted from him as the dog climbs back into Oliver, to me reads like it's a dramatic moment, that it's a moment where Shadow himself has overcome some obstacle. But you're right to point out that that's not really in the text. It's not really in the narrative. And this is where I think the story would have been better served with that being put into the text at the beginning with, with starting this story somewhere, not maybe in the first chapter, maybe the second chapter of us getting something about this protagonist that tells us that he is in a bad spot, that he's dealing with trauma, that he is himself is suffering from depression. Then we could see how the events of this story help him overcome that in some way. We get half of that we get and, and some beautiful writing as we get half of that, but we don 't get the beginning, and we needed that
0: My reading of shadow is not as somebody who 's depressed but as somebody who suffers from anhedonia, which is the in uh, inability to experience happiness it 's not that he 's so much depressed it 's that he 's just unable to experience happiness as, as a feature of his character it 's feature of his iconic status as a character. And uh, you you brought up the depression as kind of a theme and metaphor in the story. And I read that this 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 was more of a release for Oliver's depression that that through the truth being released and being known that this is the this is the light and darkness play of the story is is truth and now that justice can be done. There's no mention of justice in this story. Oliver can really forgive and forget now that he has to deal with the consequences of his action. And there's a hint here, I think, that Oliver may not have been the only one using this temple to to wall up bodies, um, that, that perhaps there's more to be discovered here in this temple, and this is maybe an impetus for more... Truth to flood into this village that has long held dark secrets walled up these bodies, and so I just i I personally did not thematically connect depression with shadow for me, it was about Oliver and it was about truth, and it was about this being more about um, living a false life than about kind of the effects of depression though i 'm really glad you did point out to me. The language that is very much about kind of the sun coming up, the relief from depression. So so Glenn, I guess I want to ask you is, did this depression stuff really work for you? If the black dog is connected with Oliver, as I suspect, if thematically this story is about Oliver's depression being a terrible thing and what he does as a result of it. If that's true, does it work for you? Or I really want to hear your argument for why I should read depression as being part of Shadow's situation.
1: Yeah, let me let me do that first, because uh, I think this, to me, goes back to the nature of Shadow, which is, which is something that you had raised earlier. So I don't think that the depression is only Shadow's. I think it is Shadow's. I think it is Oliver's. I think it is also Cassie's. I read the black dog as being a metaphor for a depression, but I also saw it as being a a legitimate numinous or supernatural thing in this story. But it is a thing that preys on people who are depressed or near depression and becomes their depression. It's preying on people who have experienced some kind of loss or trauma. Now, we don't know about Oliver. Gaiman doesn't ever tell us the origins or the nature of Oliver's depression or emotional trauma, only that he is depressed when he arrives, that that's why he leaves London and comes to this village. And we're never also told that Cassie has any kind of depression, but she is very upset by this breakup with Moira. She is dealing with this loss as well. And shadow seems also to be dealing with some kind of loss. I mean, the loss, we know his wife has died, uh, but he seems to he seems to not have emotions, which is you know you also you brought up. And so I read it as it's these people; these are the people who can see the dog are the people who are depressed, and we know that they're depressed because they can see the dog. That Moira doesn't see the dog, right, because she's fine; she's not suffering from depression. And that's why Shadow sees it. But I think that your reading of Shadow's nature is that he doesn't see the dog or Cassie because of this depression. It's because of something mystical or supernatural or numinous in his nature that we learn about in American Gods. I think you're probably right. I think maybe I was reading more into the story than is there. But uh, to get to your question of how it worked for me... I enjoyed the heck out of this story, I think, because that's how I, I read it. I found that to be really moving more. It made me more empathetic and more sympathetic with other people.
0: I, I think it's a far better reading than than mine is, to be honest with you. Uh, and I think you've actually changed my mind a little bit to read it as, read The Black Dog as a specter for, of depression for all who see it. Because though this is in a book called Trigger Warning, the association of this uh supernatural creature with Oliver's activities is is really a bit too dark to be tied to th- the way many people experience depression, and that was that was a troubling for me. R- reading that is seeing like, okay, he's a murderer. He's uh, acts out of jealousy. He's kind of a cruel man. Um, he doesn't really. He he steals this woman away from her longtime love. Oliver is not a good man. He's not a good man. He says he's not a bad man, but he's also not a good man. There's nothing in this story that shows he positively acts to change the world. And um, it was troubling for me reading it, though I think, again, as I said, your, your explanation is, is, is far more gracious and perhaps maybe more what Gaiman had in mind, that my reading of it had um, depression associated with this kind of evil just fell off to me as a
1: reader. I guess that's where I would see there's sort of two natures to the creature, that it preys on people who are depressed and then does make them murdery, I think is what's what's happening here. There's a real interesting line. It's it's in the same speech that Oliver, when, when Oliver insists that he's not a bad person. He says that although he suffers from depression, it was not the illness that made him murder Cassie, but his jealousy. And, and coupling that with the fact that we, we know, we get this line at the end, that there are lots of other people buried in, or walled up here in this tomb, uh, walled up here in this temple. I, I got the impression that this is how the black dog operates, that it preys on people who are depressed, gets into them, and then makes them evil. Uh, that, 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 that So there's sort of two natures then to the beast.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. And, I, and I'm really glad you brought up kind of that line about his jealousy
1: I will say that reading this story made me want to go back and read American Gods. I didn't watch the TV show. I've, I've not had much, you know, I just don't have as much time to watch TV as I perhaps would like. But I'm, I'm real tempted to pick up American Gods again. I have fond memories of reading it in the, my last days in, in the army, a nice winter in Denver. I think I read it in about about four sittings. And I remember enjoying it at the time. And although, yes, I think you know the the character, the protagonist of Shadow in this story seemed to have some flaws. But on the whole, I was actually, I was interested to go read more adventures with him, which is the point of having an iconic character. So um, perhaps not the best craft, but it did work on me anyway.
0: I agree. Even though I read American Gods maybe within the past year, this story also made me want to reread it um, because it's such a good story.
1: It is Absolutely fantastic.
0: So I think that's going to do it for this episode, Glenn.
1: Yeah, Brandon, this was a a lot of fun. I'm really glad that our patron had us read this story, and uh, I hope more patrons will take us up on it, help us expand our horizons a little bit. This was so much fun for me.
0: Head on over to the Clay Temple forums and let us know what you thought of Black Dog. Uh, Share with me your frustrations of Shadow as a protagonist, or just celebrate the great prose, the great world building, the great mystery, the great imagery in this story with Glenn and me as
1: well. And we'll be back next week to talk about the first two chapters of Gene Wolfe's novel, Operation Ares. Until then, we greet you and say farewell.